the good news. Your righteousness, your forgiveness, your salvation has never for a moment depended on you. If it were up to who you are, what you could do, who I am, what I could do, all would be lost. You know that deep in your heart, even if you don't yet believe in Jesus. Your conscience tells you every day that you get some right, you get some wrong, you do the right thing sometimes, other times you come up short. The good news of the gospel is not self-improvement, not a better version of you. Perfect Christ, who bears sin for you, lives life in your place, offers his righteousness to God. That's the trust that we have, that it doesn't depend on who we are or could be. It is always and only dependent on who God is. Let's pray and thank him, shall we? Father, that good news is what I get to announce now, and we're in, we're in deep truth this morning. We're going to stand on one of the great peaks, Lord, of your teaching, and also look into depths of your love, of your character, of your very person, of your being. And I, I can't explain you even correctly without your help. So help me and help those who listen. May we know how holy and righteous you are, how loved, how safe we can be, if only we will trust you. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Cross point said with me. Amen. Good morning. How many of you complained about the weather this morning? During the first service, somebody was fanning themselves and looking at me as if I should do something about it. <laughs> Half a dozen people before the first service, surely not in the second service, you seem like a more uh, reasonable crowd, complained about the hot and humid weather. Is it hot and humid? For here, for here it's pretty oppressive, but if any of you are losing hope because of this brutal weather that we're having... <laughs> My son, who is currently in the swamps of Louisiana, would be delighted to talk to you and explain that a typical day is the, temp the thermometer says 90 and the feels like says 100. Yeah, the, uh, the soundtrack of our life now, he calls, and I can hear the windshield wiper squeaking while we talk because it is just actually feels like he's living with swamp under his feet and a cloud above his head all the time. So take heart. Not only is this weather not bad, we have this remarkable invention thanks to Mr. Carrier called air conditioning. And for some of you, it's too much. And for others of you, it's not quite enough. And I'm sorry, we're doing the best we can, okay? <laughs> Literally thousands of dollars are directly overhead working on your behalf to keep you perfectly comfortable. And you'll notice the, this is not a new color, uh, new clever color scheme we've come up with. You notice the walls, some are black, some are white. This is acoustic treatment. It's to help improve the way things sound in here. Or later we're going to address the way things look in here. At a certain point, let me brace you emotionally and spiritually for the moment. I think we're probably going to have to go outside again for a single Sunday to replace the carpet in here. Don't look at it too carefully. I heard that sigh, and it broke my heart. <laughs> Don't look at the carpet too carefully, but it has been here a long time. It is past its useful life. This carpet alone has probably had more coffee than any of us put together <laughs> since we first put it down on the ground. I'm telling you all this to say life is life's pretty good, folks. 
And as we are approaching, hopefully, the actual end of the pandemic here in the United States, at least, let me remind you of, of why we do the things that we do. This week alone, some people trusted Christ. Last week, we saw three junior high students baptized. More people are getting ready for baptism. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we're, we're going to dedicate a child uh, that was born into a family who has recently trusted Christ. You've helped missionaries all around the world. But because of the work that extends around the world, I might be more conscious than some about how things are going outside our shores. Almost every week I hear from one of our missionaries and they relate without complaint just for matters of prayer and for matters also of telling uh, their needs and what God is doing in their country. Some of our Brazilian missionaries have been absolutely decimated by the pandemic. Many pastors have died. Others are sick and are, are desperately sick and are still uh, trying to recover fully from their infection. Uh, yesterday, one of the finest missionaries I've ever known, a man who made Colombia his home and lived through all the chaos and all the war and the bloodshed of that great South American nation, he went to be with the Lord after a battle with cancer complicated by COVID. I occasionally hear from even Cuban pastors. You may have seen Cuba recently in the news. You know how they're suffering. It's very encouraging. I wish I could share, and I'll try to do better. I'll, I'll share with you a global perspective as I'm able. But sometimes the most encouraging reports come from places that shouldn't be sp spoken of publicly, certainly not on the Internet. Some of these pastors, some of these families are not asking for relief. They're asking for faithfulness. They're asking guy like me living with all these comforts that consider 75 degrees a little tough in the summer due to the humidity. They're asking someone like me to pray for them so that their faith won't falter and they'll stay on task and tell their people the gospel. Without technology, without cell phones, without so many of the things we depend upon for daily life, they're finding creative ways to gather anyway so that they can keep encouraging the church and keep extending the good news of Jesus to unbelievers. I'm telling you all this to give you some perspective on how good actually life is here. What a privilege we have to be part of the work that God is doing on this corner and around the world. Just this week, some of you, through your generosity, helped a military family it's on their way from overseas where they're posted to here to Southern California to adopt their second child. From what little I've been told about that baby's life, humanly speaking, this family is going to rescue their life. It's going to give them an actual chance here on earth. You've been part of that. Let's stay faithful. Let's stay encouraged. When it lits a little bit harder, let's stay persevering. Let's be grateful all along the way because serving Jesus is not a have-to situation. It's a get-to situation. We have our marching orders. We are to love God with all of our heart, love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're to make disciples in every nation. Those are commands. Those are instructions. We're not given an option, but it's the greatest privilege ever. We get to do this. Your prayers, your financial giving, the giving away of your time and your talent and your listening, the things you think that nobody notices when I see them, believe me, I notice them and I appreciate them. And much more than that, who cares about me? Your heavenly Father who gave you the life and the power to do it all, he cares.
he notices. And according to the book of Hebrews, he's, he is not unjust to forget the labor you've done to encourage other Christians. So let's take this time that, we're, that we've had, this time of relief, this time of peace. Isn't it good to be back indoors? And let's use every bit of it for God's glory, for the good of other people. My abiding concern is that I not show up one day in the presence of Jesus and have the Lord ask me something like, Bruce, did you think that's all I wanted you to do with everything I gave you? The family I gave you, the education I provided, the churches I had you serve, the friends I gave you, the health, the things that I gave you, the ability to do, you thought that's all I wanted you to do with all of that? Now, that's my concern. You should have your own. You should look at everything that God has given you as what the Bible says it is, a brief stewardship, a brief time for you to manage God's gifts, God's life given to you on earth for a short time so that you maximize your obedience to him and his work in the world. That's what we get to do together as a church family. That's why we're here open your Bibles and let's take the next step in doing it. Look with me please in John chapter 16. You will need your Bible. We're going to read a good number of verses this morning and this morning we are talking again about doctrine. Several weeks ago with some interruptions while I was away uh, getting some needed arrest. I don't know if it was deserved. I doubt it but it certainly was needed. But I'm glad to be back and digging into the Bible again with you regarding doctrine. And that just means Christian teaching, Bible teaching, what the Bible tells you about certain topics. We began with the doctrine of the Bible itself. Why this book? Why not another? Why not do what some churches do and bring bestsellers to the mic and read and talk about them? We talked about the doctrine of God, how we know he exists, what kind of God is he. We talked specifically about God as Trinity, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. We talked specifically about Jesus, and again, today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit to gain understanding about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. I'm in John chapter 16, and when we come down to verse 7, Jesus is going to say something that you might find hard to believe, as the disciples who heard it for the first time certainly did. The setting in the Gospel of John, if you have a red-letter edition like this Bible, some publishers put the words of Jesus in red so that the reader can't miss them. You'll notice that beginning in John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, it's almost solid red. There's good reason for that. In John chapter 13, Jesus has served his final Passover supper to the disciples. He's transformed the Jewish Passover into what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. He's taken the bread and the wine characteristic of that supper and said that it is emblematic of his body and his blood, which he is about to go out the door into a dark night to sacrifice for the men sitting around the table. Then they could not fully understand what he was saying. So in 14, 15, 16, he teaches them. In John chapter 17, he prays for them. And the burden, the concern from Jesus' heart in all of this final teaching 
is to help them stand fast and to understand what comes next. Look with me in John chapter 16, verse 1. Hard days are coming for the disciples, according to Jesus. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Everything I've just been teaching you about who I am in John chapter 14, the famous verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A very well-known verse in John chapter 15 that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. All of those things Jesus said have been taught and told to these disciples now to keep them from falling away. You need to hear the weight of that, the urgency of that. The traitor is gone. These 11 disciples that remain are his apostles. They've been handpicked, according to Mark 3, verse 14. They've been chosen to spend time with Jesus and to go out and preach what he tells them. And Jesus says, very naturally, very humanly, I'm trying to toughen you up. I'm trying to strengthen you. I'm trying to build loyalty into you so that you won't fall away because, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And those days would come. Every man listening to him except John the Apostle would be killed. John himself, they tried to kill John. They simply didn't succeed. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. In other words, Jesus tells them, you're about to be engulfed by suffering. The reason they're going to persecute you is because they don't know God, and in not knowing God, they don't know me. But I want you to know that they're coming so that you're not surprised by them, so that when you remember that when they start dominating, when their hour comes, I want you to remember this night that I've told you that these things would come. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but not for much longer. But now I am going to him who sent me. Who would that be? Who sent Jesus? The Father. Once you see it, the Trinity is everywhere across the Bible. I have, now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? And that makes sense to me. Many times, both as just a normal person with family and friends, and many more times as a pastor, I've been dumbstruck by a family or an individual suffering and not known what to say. I think that's what's happening to the disciples here. Jesus has told them repeatedly that he is going away. He's not going on a journey. He's not going on a preaching expedition. He is going away to the cross. Even now while he teaches them, Judas has reached. Judas the traitor has reached the guards and reached the armed men who are going to come with torches to take Jesus away. He is going to defend their lives as he surrenders his own. But right now, they don't know that. Jesus is teaching them now some final things because he is about to leave them and they don't know what to say about it. He is telling them that he is going, but they don't have perhaps the courage. They think silence is more modest. They don't ask him, where are you going? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Here's verse 7, which you may find hard to believe. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. You think they bought it? They've loved this man. Some of them have literally left, neat, have left the nets at the feet of their family. They've all left everything they have. They've said that to him and had to have Jesus reassure them that it will all count and it will all be rewarded and they will receive a much greater reward first on earth and then certainly in heaven than anything they left behind. They've forsaken their vocation. They've forsaken their prestige. At least one of them probably walked away from a great deal of wealth. Matthew, the tax collector, certainly had a comfortable position financially. They are used to Jesus and used to doing what he says. And now he says the best thing that could happen to you is for me to go away. And here's why. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. You'll notice if you're following along in your Bible, the translators have tried to help you by putting the word helper with a capital H. That's a title. They're referring to the Holy Spirit. The Greek word under that means advocate encourager, someone who speaks to God on your behalf. Jesus is referring here to the Holy Spirit, and he says something amazing. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, in what sense could it possibly make any sense at all that it would be better for the disciples and that it's better today for us for Jesus not to be physically present. And haven't you, just in times of imagination, haven't you wanted to meet Jesus? Don't you wish you could have been there? When he fed 5,000 with the kids' sack lunch, wouldn't you have liked to sit on those hills? Watch the disciples anxiously, impatiently searching the crowd for food, finally bringing a kid's lunch and saying, this is all there is. And Jesus, according to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, taking that little bit of a child's meal in his hands, looking up to heaven, praying over it, and then disciple by disciple, piece by piece, multiplying it until the whole crowd is fed and there's a basket of food left, one for each disciple. Wouldn't that have been incredible? Wouldn't you have liked to see him wake up in the middle of a storm, rebuke nature, and have it quiet down, and then turn calmly with wet hair, asking the disciples, where's your faith? Jesus is saying, the Son of God incarnate is saying to these disciples, it's better if I leave. Because when I leave, and this won't happen unless I leave, and he's not going away back to heaven... They're through ordinary means. He's going through the means of suffering, through the cross, through being placed, his actual corpse, in a tomb, staying dead for three days, and then taking, as promised, his life back. How in the world is it helpful, much less better, for Jesus to have gone away? Let me show you before I tell you what the Holy Spirit does. Look backward in your Bible to John chapter 14. Verse 1, 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's going away not to abandon them, but to make room for them. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look forward to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Here's for the advantage of Jesus being physically gone from the world to send the Holy Spirit in his place begins to make sense. Verse 17, look at it carefully. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be, what's it say? What? In you. You know the Holy Spirit. You don't know him fully, but the Holy Spirit who is in the Hebrew Scriptures, whose name and work you've heard in the synagogue week by week, because the Holy Spirit shows up early in the Bible, in the second verse of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is mentioned by name before Jesus even is. All through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is working, but only for a time, only for certain people. People in a beginning like King Saul and later full, more fully in the life of King David, the Holy Spirit comes, empowers people for ministry. Then in the case of Saul, for instance, he departs when they walk away from God. Jesus is saying something new. God is doing an entirely new thing because at the end of John 14, 17, you know him for he dwells with you. In other words, the Holy Spirit has been beside you. The Holy Spirit has been working through you. And little surprise because the Holy Spirit is mentioned all through the ministry of Jesus. People around Jesus when he was born spoke by the Holy Spirit, had things revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit appeared on the day of Jesus' baptism, very specifically empowered him for ministry, moved him from place to place. Jesus is saying, you've experienced all these things. You know him for he dwells with you, but he will now be in you. First. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How will he do that if he is physically gone? He will do that through the gift of the encourager, through the gift of the helper. He will do that through the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Yet a little, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Jesus would die on the cross and the world would think that was the end of him. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. There, Christian, is the promise of eternal life. Jesus says, because I'm taking my life back, because I will have eternal life, so will you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Don't miss this next part. 
What I'm going to read next is one of the most astonishing things in the entire Bible. It might be, to me, the most comforting thing that Jesus ever said. It shows you the depth of God's love, and it also shows you how wide his love is and why the Holy Spirit had to come. Listen. Whoever has my commandment and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Even though I'm, love, even though I'm leaving, the Father will keep loving you, and I will keep showing up in your life. And of course, they didn't get it. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Here's the mind-blowing verse. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make what? Our home with him. Wow. You getting that? How is that possible? Through the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Through all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in coordination and yet each person within the Holy Trinity doing his own individual work. The Father sending the Son, the Son dying for sin, laying his life down and taking it back in the resurrection so that he could say to his disciples, because I live, you will live also. And then in the absence of Jesus, with Jesus, his work completed, having gone back to heaven, enthroned again at the right hand of God, God the Holy Spirit comes and he makes the Father and the Son live within and make themselves at home in the likes of us. You ever worry that maybe God loves you but doesn't particularly like you? <laughs> ever think about that? I do because sometimes in marriage and sometimes in parenting, my wife and my sons will say, Dad, I love you. And what that means is, you ever had this phrase? Is this done in anybody else's home? I love you, parentheses, but gosh, that was a dumb thing to say or do. And I just, I feel the inadequacy. I see the mistake at that moment. What God is telling you here, rather, what Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son is telling you is through the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the work of God will not merely be going through you, it will not only be around you, God himself will be in you, and the Father and the Son who love you will make themselves at home in you. All of that is happening because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And now I just need to show you how that work begins all the way back in John chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And now we know why. Because the Spirit will come, and though Jesus physically will be in heaven praying for you, we learned last a few weeks ago, though the Father is loving you and the Son is loving you and he is interceding for you in the presence of the Father and somehow the Father and the Son are loving you and making themselves at home in you. The Holy Spirit has come and the Holy Spirit has come to help you. He has come to you and here is his work. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That verse, verse 8, is the first thing you need to know about the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the world. 
What the Holy Spirit has come to do, according to Jesus, is to convict the world. To show the world what truth is, to show the unbelieving world how wrong they are regarding three things. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's take them one by one. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, the unbelieving world, the great mass of people alive in the world today. Ignoring God, disbelieving God, mistrusting God, denying God with the intelligence he gave them. Seeking them in all kinds of religions of their own invention. The heart of that sin is that people don't believe in Jesus. That is the sin of the world. That is the first thing that the Holy Spirit is going to show the world. That people are wrong. That people are sinning because they don't believe in Jesus. Verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, when I studied this a couple weeks ago, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, that made perfect and immediate sense to me. It is a serious sin indeed. For God the Son, who made the world and rules it, and according to Scripture, keeps it together, to extend himself to the people he made and have those same people deny him. Take his name in vain. Mistreat him, abuse him, ignore him, treat him as a superstition or a lie. I read verse 9 and it made immediate sense to me. Sin is not believing in Jesus. But verse 10, that was a little harder for me. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you are not going to see me anymore. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to do three things in order. First, he's going to show people that they're wrong for not believing in Jesus. Perhaps you remember the moment you started trusting Jesus. If you're a Christian and quite sure of it, if you're a disciple of Jesus, let me ask you to look back in your own life's history. Do you remember when the light came on and you started trusting Jesus? Yeah. Do you remember when you didn't? Do you remember the questions you had? Do you remember how goofy you thought your Christian's friends were? Spend their Sunday mornings at church singing songs to somebody who wasn't there? But then slowly through a whole bunch of different influences, maybe through some painful experiences, you started changing your mind and suddenly one day the light came on, you saw your sin, you saw the distance between you and the God you somehow knew was there and you repented of ever thinking the way you used to and you started trusting Jesus. The Holy Spirit did that. That is verse 9. He convicts the world, one individual at a time, of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. But what did Jesus mean that he was going to convict the world of righteousness because Jesus was going back to the Father? That, as I told you, made me think a little bit harder, study a little bit more, and here's what I think Jesus meant. Jesus meant that he was going back to the Father and the unbelieving world would see him no longer because, first of all, Jesus was going to prove that he told the truth and he was going to be vindicated by his resurrection. 
The only reason it makes any sense, the only reason Jesus has the authority to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is if he can rise from the dead, because that's what he claimed he would do time after time. And any man on the street claiming to die one day for the sins of other people and rise from the actual literal corpse dead three days later is a maniac unless he can prove it. That's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in fact, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the best thing all of us could do is go party. I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's what the Bible says. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. If this life is all there is, you'd better get a little more fun out of it. If you're just a super animated monkey that was made by some improbable cosmic accident being animated by electricity and chemical impulses that you do not understand, and you will someday, through the violence of another one of the super monkeys, or through the misfortune of having an accident in nature, will have your life snuffed out never again to return, you better go have some more fun. What we're doing here is senseless. Every dollar given, every minute offered, every act of service given by this church has ultimately been pointless. For those of you who took philosophy classes, God bless you if you didn't, I had to. A great French thinker said that the reason, the fact that we're all going to die makes this life a joke. If he's right... If there's just a brief, hard life followed by death and that's it, he's right. This is a cruel, cosmic joke. Why bother? Jesus' claim is that he is life and he gives life and he saw sinful human beings far from God and knew himself as God himself that the only way to bring them back was to live and to die for them. And now he says, the world is going to be shown the righteousness of my words, the truthfulness of my words, and the righteousness of God. All of that is going to be shown when I rise from the dead. The world won't see me, but you will, and you'll realize in that day that I was right. The other thing that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of is that the world's righteousness turns out to be fatal. See, let me make it as plain as I can. Every person on earth, every person in this room, and every person on earth is making a choice between the righteousness of God and their own. And people who do not trust Jesus are in that decision saying and claiming that they would rather have and rather trust their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of God. There is no third choice. Jesus didn't intend to leave us one. Jesus is continually putting people at the crossroads. He is continually telling them that he is life and that death is coming. In fact, he compared people who would listen to his words and put them into practice like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And a storm came and the house stood. He said that other people who did listen to his words but did not put them into practice. Do you remember the rest of the word picture? Someone who would build on sand was what kind of builder? Foolish. See, that's why we're doing this study. That's why some of you are going, oh my goodness, I hope he makes this a little simpler. I hope he hurries this up. I'm not sure I'm getting all this. 
I'm doing the best I can. Bear with me. What we're trying to do is to take Jesus seriously and to dig into the rock of his teaching. A storm is coming. It's called suffering and it's called death and it will slam into every single one of our lives, mine included. I may not make it to see this carpet replaced. I don't know. I hope so, but you may have noticed COVID has slowed everything down. Who knows? The only certainty is that the life you enjoy right now is only temporary. And Jesus is saying there is real sin in the world and there is real righteousness in the world. The real righteousness is the righteousness of God. What people are choosing instead is their own righteousness. They're choosing to hear the teaching of Jesus and not build their life on it. We're taking time to dig deep into actual solid words from Jesus so that when the storm comes, we can stand fast. You dare not trust your own righteousness. You don't want to stand in the presence of a holy God and say to him, I did the best I could. Do you know what that God will say to you in return? Not good enough. You may have done the best you could, but it's not nearly up to my standard. People constantly prefer their own righteousness. I once did, and I sometimes still do, because personal righteousness is so negotiable. You can adjust it, you can cut it down, you can tailor make it to make yourself right. Here's proof. Have you noticed that there's a little trouble in the world? Have you noticed how much hatred, how much bloodshed, how much violence, how much hopelessness, how much depression, how much anxiety, how much fear, and how much hate is running through the world? Have you also noticed that every single participant in all of that conflict continually says that they're right? Now, how can it be that we can all be in so much trouble and almost every person in the conflict is saying the whole way they're right? People on opposite sides of the issue declaring things that cannot both be true, both feel that they're right. That's what it looks like when the world, when an individual chooses their own righteousness. Here's how Paul explained it. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. My plea to you is to give up on your own righteousness because it's not enough and it never has been, and instead take the righteousness of Jesus. See, righteousness, human righteousness, is so laughably bad in the sight of God that it reminds me of something I did when I was a little boy. See, my mother was a contradictory woman because she forbid me cookies between meals, but she made cookies all the time. <laughs> Seemed cruel. And she'd make two, three, four dozen at a time, both chocolate and peanut butter. Oh, how I love the peanut butter. You can probably tell I still like cookies. <laughs> she made amazing cookies. And she would put them in this jar, and then she would say, you can't have these. It's like we're back in the Garden of Eden and I'm being tested, right? Test of obedience. Well, one day I could actually smell them through the cookie jar. So I pulled drawers out and made a little makeshift ladder and climbed up onto the counter and literally had my hand in the cookie jar when she came around the corner. And she asked me a prosecutorial question. She said, Bruce, what are you doing? Well, I knew it was a trap because it was pretty obvious what I was doing. 
And I said, Mom, I know we can't have cookies between meals, but I found one, <laughs> and I'm putting it back. <laughs> I'll let you guess whether she bought it and what happened immediately after that. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because a five-year-old claiming to put a cookie back so that the rules are followed actually makes more sense and actually has a better chance than an ordinary sinful human being in the sight of God claiming his own righteousness. This is how God has loved you. The Father has loved you and sent the Son to live and die in your place. And then the Son, having done his work, returning to the glory he always enjoyed with the Father, sends the Spirit to open your eyes to see your sin, to see how pointless your own righteousness is and to give you instead the righteousness of God. And then it says in verse 11 concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The disciples, their entire ministry have seen actual evil through demonic possession. They have seen Satan try to thwart and lie and deny and obstruct the work of Jesus at every point. And Jesus is telling them that the Holy Spirit will convict the world, the unbelieving world, first of their sin, then open their eyes to God's righteousness, and then assure them of judgment because the defeat of Satan is so certain that it may as well have already happened. This is how the Holy Spirit brings lost and unbelieving people to Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do has already happened in your life. Your eyes were one day open to sin and open to the righteousness of Jesus, and you can now rest in the fact that Satan will be defeated. What difference does all this make? Let me tell you, Christian, how loved you are. All of this means that your salvation is a work entirely of God. What the Holy Spirit has already done for you should make you feel grateful and loved and confident. With all the self-accusation as you think of your past and you worry about your future, you can stop at any moment and consider what God, the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have already done for you. The Holy Spirit doing all this for you means that your salvation is a work of God from start to finish, that it never depended upon you because you were never going to make it on your own. It means that your righteousness was never enough, and the righteousness of Jesus always has been. That's the beauty of one of the songs we were singing earlier when we sing to God, that is who you are, that puts the emphasis on the right place. People are continually torturing themselves, looking at social media, comparing their lives and their moments with the lives and the moments of others. We continually look at our achievements, at our intelligence, at our possessions, at our families, at our friendships, at our jobs, at our earning, and we continually feel like we're coming up short. That is the way of the world that tells you that your righteousness and your achievement is the best thing you can offer to yourself or to anybody else. The gospel says just the contrary. The gospel humbles you by telling you you were never enough, but the God who made you and loved you always has been. Rest on his righteousness, not your own. And finally, the, Jesus announces that because... He is true and he is right. Your victory is already won. 
that the evil that has afflicted you, the injustice that you've suffered in the world, the reality that you've seen of spiritual darkness will not have the final word. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will, as Jesus said to a larger group of disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, these ordinary men came back to Jesus. They had done everything. He told them they came back and they said, Lord, even the spirits submit to us. We speak to demons in your name and they leave. Jesus said this amazing truth and this was true of them and this is true of you. Read it with me, please. Jesus said to Christians, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your best achievements, Jesus isn't impressed. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That little exorcism you did, casting out a demon in my name, that was impressive, I grant you. I'm really glad I could use you to do that. No big deal. I saw how he was defeated in the first place. You shouldn't even be happy that you're serving me well, even though I sent you to do it. Let me tell you what you should really be happy about. You should rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Death, unemployment, depression, desertion by friends and family, all the painful, hard things that this life has to offer, none of it compares to knowing that your name is written in heaven. And that was done because of the love of the Father and the death and the resurrection of the Son and then the Holy Spirit coming to you when you weren't looking for God, when you didn't believe in God, when you didn't know your need, opening your eyes to the reality of sin to the availability of God's righteousness and assuring you even now that nobody will get away with anything, that sin will either be forgiven by the mercy of God or judged by God's holiness. And the good news for you is your name is already written in heaven. If you're following Jesus, in other words, Christian, it is thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit. But that was just the beginning. I'll need a whole other Sunday to tell you what else he is doing for you right now. Let's pray together. Could I just ask you in closing, have you ever had your eyes open to sin? As you sit here in church, have you ever given up on your own righteousness and asked God to give you his righteousness instead? In this battle of life, are you quite sure that evil will lose? that you'll share in Christ's victory because you've trusted Christ? If you haven't, could I invite you please to turn to Jesus? I'm just going to invite you right now in the quietness of your heart and mind before God, if you're not entirely sure that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven, that everything I've just said applies to you. So I don't understand everything you said. Friend, me neither. I'm just trying to get my arms around it. I'm asking you something very simple. Have you ever given up on your own righteousness? Have you ever confessed your sin before God and asked for his mercy and forgiveness instead? If you haven't, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. And I'm going to ask you to let us know if you do that by filling out a card that's in one of the bulletins, by sending us a text or sending me an email during the week. That's not part of salvation, of course. We just want to celebrate with you. We want to pray for you. If you need a Bible, we want to give it to you. If you have a Bible, we want to help you understand it so that you'll know how much God loves you. And Christian, 
you realize how deeply you're loved by God? That the Father and the Son will come and make themselves at home in your little ordinary life? That all of that was going to happen through the Holy Spirit? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working in the triune unity of God. That each person doing his individual work so that God could call you his daughter? God could call you his son? Wow. Life on this earth can be quite hard. But in perspective, compared to the love, compared to the faithfulness, compared to the future God has for you, meaningless. The suffering of this world, meaningless compared to the glory that will soon be revealed. If you don't know Jesus, let me ask you now to turn away from your sin and call out to him in your own words. Put your personal trust in him. Ask him to save you. Father, thank you for loving us the way you do. I pray, God, if there are people here who don't know you, that they would right now, that they'd move in repentance towards you and ask you, Jesus, to save them. Thank you in advance that you will. You have this week. And Father, let every Christian here rejoice in the certainty, the depth, and the breadth of your love. I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. So listen, it's not a bad life. At 4.30 this afternoon, we're going to bring in some tacos. I grew up in Mexico. I care about tacos in a way that I can't begin to explain to you. I know the difference between the good ones and the bad ones. I'm quite sure we're going to have good ones. You're all invited. It's all for free. All we would ask if you're part of this church, come enjoy the tacos on us. Just bring a dessert with you to share. Because sometimes after the hot sauce, a dessert tastes really, really good. We've invited first responders from all across our community to come and join us for free as well. We just want to say a word of encouragement and thanks to them. We won't put them on the spot or embarrass them. We just want to thank them for the work that they do on our behalf. We just want to have a little Christian family time. I know the heat's oppressive. I know you're going to go home and collapse from exhaustion because of this terrible weather that we're having. But I want to summon you to courage to come back at 4.30, have some tacos, see if you can encourage someone else, and listen, if God loves us individually like this, how much love, how much joy, how much peace, how much encouragement can be found when individuals who are loved by God this way come together? That's called a church. That's called a family of faith. And that's why we're here. That's why we hope you'll join us. God bless you. Love you. See you soon.